Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Do our Advent reading and write our, light our Advent uh, calendar. Peace. The prophet Isaiah writes, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. Advent is a time to focus on the unique things that Jesus brings into our lives and into our world. The peace candle is also called the angel's candle because it was the angels that appeared in miraculous form above the shepherds and announced, peace on earth to those who hear and on whom his favor rests. The scriptures speak of many kinds of peace that God brings. We need peace in our relationship with God because our sins have put a distance between us and a holy God. When Jesus died on the cross for us, he made that peace possible. As the scriptures say, he is our peace. Then there is peace that God promises to the world at large. Someday Jesus will reign over all nations and will be ruled by the only pure, perfect government ever on the planet, the perfect rule of God, a peaceful reign where justice and righteousness flow from his throne. There will be the prophet's dream, and it is our dream more than ever as we live daily in our world broken by sin. Dear Lord, thank you for the peace that resides in our forgiven hearts hearts that know you are for us and not against us, hearts that have consciences emptied of the stain of our sins, hearts that are free because of your love and forgiveness. You have given us peace, and we thank you. Now we long for the peace of Jesus to permeate through the whole world as you return someday to this broken world and make things right. Come, Lord Jesus, come, Prince of Peace. Amen. We light the candle of peace today. One of the challenges of uh, preaching is actually the familiarity of Christmas and Easter. These are some of our favorite stories, but twice a year we revisit very familiar themes, which is a challenge for those of us who speak about it. There are very few Easter passages, and you need to be faithful to the texts that do exist. If it's Easter time, Peter's the denier, Judas is the bad guy, Jesus is arrested and illegally tried, he's crucified and buried, he rises again. And the challenge every year for those of us who know the Bible well is to make it fresh and interesting. And if you're in my position, you make it too fresh and interesting. If you're the guy who's like got the the angle on the text that nobody's ever heard before, you're probably a heretic because you're probably just making something up that has nothing to do with authorial intent. So that's a problem because the story is the story. Christmas is the same. You know, when you look at the New Testament texts, it's about the birth of John the Baptist, who was just before Jesus. It's about Mary and Joseph, can't change their names. It's the story of the virgin birth. It's shepherds and angels. It's the wise guys from Persia. And a half a dozen Old Testament prophecies, and of course, the bad girls of the Bible, my favorite. But the story is the story. You know, we can create some color, we can create some context, we can add a few cats for effect. But it's hard 
to be original at Christmas. So Brennan and I, we were talking about this series because we're doing it together a bit, and I decided to name this series with him The Light of the World because it sort of gives us the choice, the broadest choice, the broadest template or broadest palette of opportunities to take all of these scriptures, Old and New Testament, and just focus on a few of those stories. And today I want to tell you a story that I've never used at Christmas before, and it's the story of Esther because it has everything to do with Christmas. Some estimate that there are well over 400 individual prophecies about Jesus from the Old Testament. I think John Ankerberg and his partner in one of his books, I believe said about 456 different details prophesied about Jesus. And every time God predicts something new about Jesus in the Old Testament that he's saying is gonna happen in the future, he sort of puts himself on the hook for its fulfillment, and that's the beauty of prophecy. To me, it's almost a, you know, the miracle of providence, how God controls history. It, it's a great testimony to God's truthfulness. And God didn't make it easy on himself when it comes to the issues of prophecy surrounding Jesus. Begins in Genesis 3, as soon as we've fallen, and this is what Brennan talked about last week, you've got this prophecy that there would be the seed of the woman that would ultimately defeat evil. Now, some would say, based on the Hebrew construction of that word, that right there in Genesis 3, it's demanding a virgin birth or virginal conception. That this God-man, seed of the woman, would one day be our Savior. That's where it starts. But then in Genesis 12 through 15, God picks out Abraham, who's really a seeker after truth, and God reveals himself to Abraham and says that this seed of the woman ultimately is gonna come through Abraham's seed. So now he's narrowed it down to a nation. Jesus is gonna be Jewish. He's gonna be an Israelite. In Genesis 49, he narrows it down to one of the 12 tribes through which Jesus will come, and we know he's going to be the Lion of Judah or the Seed of Judah. 2 Samuel 7 as God is honoring King David because David wanted to build a house for God. He wanted to build a temple. God said, because you wanted to build a house for me, I'm gonna make your house last forever and the Messiah will come through you. So now it's gonna be a son of David or the seed of David. In Isaiah chapter seven, we see the virgin birth, again, restated. The virgin will conceive, capital, or I should say definite article. In other words, it's something they were aware of because of Genesis three. So now you got it confirmed in Isaiah seven, there's gonna be a virgin birth. Isaiah seven through nine, he's gonna be a God-man. The scripture that was read earlier clearly references that the Messiah is beyond human. Isaiah 40, he's going to be preceded by a prophet. We know that prophet to be John the Baptist. Micah 5, because he's from the house of David. David was born in Bethlehem. He'll be born in Bethlehem. And many more, all very specific. And many of them, not just about the life and ministry of Messiah, but his actual birth and coming. But in the middle of the Old Testament, in the middle of Old Testament history, in the 5th century B.C., Everything is at risk. Every promise that God made since the garden and Adam and Eve is now fully at risk of not coming true. Why? Israel's security was at risk. They had been conquered. 
They were a conquered people for many generations, for many centuries. They no longer had sovereign control over their own land. And when you don't have sovereign control over your own land, you are vulnerable as a people. And if they were vulnerable as a people and something happened to the nation of Israel, all of God's prophecies about Messiah and salvation would not come true. Enter Esther. The time was the 5th century B.C. Israel is now just a people. Israel is not a country. She's just a people. A series of foreign invaders has rendered her powerless. And during each of these foreign invasions, particularly under the Assyrians and maybe especially the Babylonians, many of them were deported into these foreign capitals, uh, other major cities in these great empires of Assyria and Babylon. So the Jewish nation is sort of dispersed to some degree. And the Assyrians in 722, the Babylonians in about 600 BC down to 586 BC. Now the Persians have taken over Babylon. And the Persian Empire, at the point that Esther is written, is, is from India all the way to northern Africa. It encompasses the Holy Land, and it encompasses every area into which Jews have been deported under these foreign governments. There were 127 different provinces in this great Persian empire. And at times, throughout some of these great empires, and even though they conquered Israel, they were great empires militarily and in government. At times, there were Jews that rose in power in these empires and were quite influential. And actually, Daniel is one of the prominent ones that we know about. Esther comes much later, much after Daniel. Many generations have gone by. Now, the book covers six pages of scripture. We could just read the story, which might be a little harder to keep your attention, but the book is broken beautifully up into a series of short of short stories. It's very well written. And today, I'm gonna sort of do the same, and I might not include every one of them because of time, but we're gonna break up the story into, or the book of Esther into about five stories. And so my outline is gonna be a series of news articles potential news articles in the local politics section of the capital of Sousa's newspaper. Number one, first article, Trophy Queen Vashti refuses to walk the runway, demoted as bad example for all Persian women. Now this actually happened. Ahasuerus, we're gonna call him Xerxes because he has two different names, ruled several generations after Daniel. He ruled a vast empire. And soon after coming to power, he gave a massive banquet for all of his political, provincial, and military leaders. And this is a banquet. He's, he's new to power. It's going to be a half a year. This is 180 days of basically bragging about the greatness of the Persian Empire. This guy was not all work and no play. He knew how to party. He is planning a party for half a year. Now that's a party. His queen was entertaining the women of the palace similarly. Day seven was eventful. The Bible makes it very clear that Xerxes had had a little bit to drink. And so he's a little drunk and he wants to show off his queen and her name was Vashti. So he summoned her. 
Now, one of the things you'll see in this book of Esther is that whoever wrote it, we're not sure who wrote it, we'll talk about that later, had a great knowledge of Persian customs and including Persian law. And when the king of Persia spoke, and this is gonna come up many times in the stories, when the queen of Persia, or when the king of Persia spoke, it was law. In fact, the word was more powerful than the king's authority. Once he spoke, it was law, and even he could not undo his word. That's going to come up later. So he basically says, hey, I'm going to show you Vashti, my queen. And he's a little drunk. Vashti's off holding her own party. And she just wasn't feeling it. And we all know what she's thinking. You know, she's thinking, oh, great. He just wants to show me off. I'm going to go into a room full of drunken men. I have a degree in economics from Sousa State. I don't need this. You know, I'm tired of being objectified. And she refused to come into the room. This was public defiance of the king. And I think we would agree the 5th century B.C. was not the year of the woman. So she's defied the king of the greatest empire on earth. Well, you can imagine, you've got hundreds and hundreds of guys in a room alone. And you've got the queen unwilling to appear. And of course, you put that many men in a room alone and they start talking, bad things happen. The political and judicial officials were worried about this really radical spread of ancient feminism. You know, we can't have the queen not showing up when the king suggests she show up. And so they actually went to the king with a suggestion of the demotion of Queen Vashti. And it was done. I mean, I would have loved to have been a mouse in the corner listening to all of these men talk about the terrible things that are going to happen because Vashti didn't come in the room. But the stage is set with Esther's demotion, or with Vashti's demotion for Esther. The next article, Young Jewess Wins Beauty Contest and King's Heart. Welcome Queen Esther. So a massive beauty contest, this is empire-wide, 127 provinces receive sort of emissaries trying to gather up all the most beautiful young women in all of these provinces. So a massive beauty contest, or as Miss Congeniality says, a scholarship program was constructed to find the next queen. Esther, who was lovely in form and appearance, the Bible says, was chosen as part of the program. Now, she at the time was being raised by her older cousin or uncle. Sometimes that word is a little bit hard to discern the difference between in Greek and Hebrew. But a relative of hers could be a cousin or an uncle. He's older than her. Mordecai is raising Esther. Now, Mordecai's relatives, his family was deported generations before by King Nebuchadnezzar, same King Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel knew. So Mordecai's family, and he's a cousin of Esther, has been here for you know, well over 100 years probably. He's raising this young woman. Esther is chosen to be part of the scholarship program. Each young lady went through 12 months of preparation before she would ever be presented to the king. Now, I don't know what you can do in 12 months. I feel like there are times in my life I've waited for a few minutes for a woman to get ready for something, but not 12 months. 12 months of preparations. Esther made an immediate impression, not just on the king when she met him, 
but on the officials who are conducting this sort of beautification and preparation process. And she was immediately elevated. Her Jewishness was never known. She had an agreement with her cousin, Mordecai, don't tell them that you're a Jew. Esther, after four years, becomes the new queen. Four years from Vashti's demotion. And now you have a Jewish queen of the largest empire on earth, the land of Persia. The third article, Western foreigners scheduled for genocide, Persian nationalism on the rise. How did we go from Esther being the queen to her people being in jeopardy? This is where the real plot thickens in the book. There was a man named Haman, and Haman rises to second in command. So as Esther becomes queen, there's natural political processes going on. Of course, King Xerxes is elevated and demoting who he wants to, and somebody's risen in the ranks, and the guy's name was Haman. He was evidently good for the king. He was good for the country up to this point. The Bible says he's an Agagite, A-G-A-G-I-T-E, Agagite. Now, there's no nation of Agag. So what is an Agagite? Well, we're not exactly sure of his origins, but there is one connection that we see in Old Testament history that scholars believe is probably what's behind this. There was a king of the Amalekites. The Amalekites were basically the World War II equivalent of the Germans, or the ancient equivalent of the World War II Germans, Nazis, and the SS. They, hundreds and hundreds of years before, tried to wipe out and exterminate the Israelites as they were coming into the promised land. And there was a king in particular named Agag who was supposed to be put to death that Saul actually uh, was able to beat in warfare and capture. The Jews knew about this man. He's a part of their history, this King Agag. So now you've got this Haman who's an Agagite, and it appears that the Amalekites, bent on Israel's annihilation, are opening a new chapter of hate through this man who's risen in rank to second in command in the Persian Empire. Xerxes, because he loves Haman, I mean, Haman's good for the country, he does a good job, he does what he's told, he's a great, uh, probably a great sort of, uh, uh, you know, He's a good administrator of government issues. So Xerxes, the king, has commanded that whenever Haman goes down the street, he should be given the royal treatment just like Xerxes is. So when Haman goes down the street, you should bow to Haman because he's second in command. Well, the problem is Jews don't bow to foreign gods. It's a bit of a sticking point for them. And There are many times in their history where they pretty much bared their necks and say, go ahead and kill us over it, but we're not going to do it. Mordecai, Esther's cousin, her older cousin, somehow seemed to always be on the, the road to work for Haman. And Haman would be on his way to work, and everyone would say, oh, Haman, good to see you. Yes, you are great. And Mordecai would just kind of turn and, you know, sip his latte and not pay any attention. Haman knew Mordecai was a Jew. An ancient hatred was reborn And Haman went to the king, and he made the case that people like Haman would never assimilate well into the Persian Empire. Because people like like Mordecai, I should say Haman made the case, people like Mordecai could 
could never assimilate, therefore his people could never assimilate because they wouldn't bow to a foreign leader. They wouldn't bow to foreign gods. So he made the case that this group of people who are the Jews are, are incompatible with Persia. And he formally requested a national day of genocide, a national day in which all of the Jews throughout all 127 provinces would be purged. Not only did he want all of the Jews purged, he offered the king a massive amount of money to do it. So Haman was very wealthy. He offered the king a reward. The king basically told him to keep your money, but I will allow it. And the king sent couriers to 127 provinces, allowing a special day during which all of the Jews could be annihilated. Men, women, children. And in order to incentivize this mass genocide, Persians who participated in the genocide would be able to take the Jews' possessions when they invaded their homes and slaughtered them. It was an irreversible Persian edict. The king's word and the king's signet ring were used. There was to be a national purge day. It encompassed every part of Persia, which means every Jewish settlement, every settlement in the homeland, which is now under Persian control, and every settlement that was created by deported and resettled Jews all the way back to Assyria and Babylon. In other words, every Jew, every Jewish life was at risk. But here's the point. It's all at risk now. God's plan is at risk. God's promises are at risk. Hundreds of prophecies that God has made about the God-man that we know as Jesus Christ are now at risk. Every promise about Jesus since Genesis 12 where it's narrowed down that Messiah would ultimately be a part of the blessing on Abraham that would bless the world All of those promises are at risk. Son of Abraham, son of Judah, son of David, it's all at risk. And if we have have no Israel, there will be no God-man. If we have no God-man, there will be no salvation for humanity. There will be no cross. There will be no sacrifice for sin. Every part of God's plan that relates to the salvation of humanity and our hope today is at risk. Because Israel has no country. They're just a people and they're gonna be wiped out on National Purge Day. Fourth article, twist of fate. New queen fights for self, conquered people. Jews now armed for Purge Day. Stay tuned. Xerxes doesn't know it. He's happy with Esther. He wasn't crazy about Vashti. He's happy with Esther and he has signed her death warrant and he has no idea. His own wife is going to be killed, and he has no idea. The Jews throughout 127 provinces are in open anguish. They get this edict. They see what comes to their their town halls. They see the posting. They recognize what's coming on this terrible day. Esther's been insulated a little bit in the palace, so she's actually sort of the last to know. Mordecai wants to get word to her as her older cousin. So eventually she becomes informed. 
She's asked to appeal to her husband, the king. She fears for her life because she recognizes her people are at risk, but there's also this Persian custom that uninvited guests into the inner court of the king will be executed. That's the law. If you go into the king's inner court and he didn't invite you, you're in trouble unless he raises his scepter, a symbol of his authority for you to enter. And so she says that to, to Mordecai, or I should say the, the person coming to her from Mordecai, that, that she's afraid to go to see the king. He hasn't asked to see her, and it's very dangerous in, in the Persian court and in her life to do that. But I, I think she underestimated how much she pleased the king and how much he cared about her. So Esther approaches Xerxes, who is not asked to see her, and he's thrilled to see her. And he raises his scepter, and she goes and touches his scepter. And this is what he says, literally. What is troubling you, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even to half of the kingdom, it shall be given to you. Words I've used with my own wife many times. (laughs) Thank you for that polite but unenthusiastic response. So she's trying to gather the nerve to, to tell him what's really going on. And she, she invited Xerxes and Haman to a banquet. At that banquet, the king asked what she wanted. And we don't really know what's going on here, but she evidently wasn't ready to fully go down this path. And so she told him, I'd like to invite you to another banquet. So she invites Xerxes and Haman to a second banquet. And I want to read for you a little bit about what happens at that second banquet. It's on page 367 if you want to turn there, or you can just listen to the story. Esther chapter 7, now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther on the second day also, as they drank their wine at the banquet, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. He, He says this every time he sees her. Then Queen Esther replied, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition and my people as my request. In other words, don't kill me and don't kill my people. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I, wouldn't have, re- I would have remained silent for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? Who would presume to do thus? Esther said, a foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. And Haman became terrified before the king and queen. King arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. I mean, he's fuming. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. In other words, nobody's going to look at him again. Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which Haman actually made for Mordecai who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Not long after that, 
Esther again made an appeal to Xerxes, or Hazarus, to revoke the day of purging in which she and all of her people could die. Unfortunately, because of Persian law, it could not be done. Persian legal system made the king's edicts into irreversible laws. You had to be careful what you said. But a new edict was issued. He got some counsel. He got some advice. And a new edict was issued that went to the same 127 provinces. They received this news. So next to the first posting in each town center was this posting. On the day of purge, on the day of genocide, Jews can now arm themselves. Jews can organize. Jews can also take plunder from all who attack them. Not only can they fight back, they can profit from it. That was now the law for purge day. The day came. The day people have been fearing. Provincial officials in 127 provinces were so afraid of the new political establishment, Esther and now Mordecai replacing Haman in the king's court, that provincial officials got on the side of the Jews and anyone who attacked the Jews were going to face not only the Jews but provincial officials because they so wanted to please the king and were afraid of Esther and Mordecai. Over 75,000 people died on the day of purging. Israel's enemies, over 75,000 died in one day. The fifth news article, Jews win regional skirmishes, create new Purim holiday, population thrilled with another paid day off. You can do a little better, come on, all right. Every year, in synagogues and homes all over the world, on March 6th, whenever Sabbath begins, so let's just say plus or minus six in the evening, till March 7th at plus or minus six in the evening, Jews celebrate Purim. They celebrate this anniversary of this day of Survival. In fact, many Bible scholars believe the reason the book of Esther is in the Bible is that one of its purposes would to be explain, to, to explain why Jews celebrate Purim because it's not a holiday that comes out of the book of Exodus or the book of Deuteronomy where you have all the Jewish holidays explained. So it's not a part of the law. It's not a part of Genesis through Deuteronomy, which we call the Pentateuch, or the law formally. You've got this holiday that everyone's celebrating, and there's no history of it unless it's explained in the book of Esther. I just want to close with a, a few points from Esther's life. First, even in our darkest moments, God is always at work on his plan. This is a theme in Esther. And it's quite fascinating because there's some things I haven't told you yet. We're not sure who wrote Esther. And there's some debate about whether it's a, a, an early date, sort of contemporary of Esther, or whether it's a later date. Uh, many, and I believe it's an earlier dated book, uh, right as soon as these events closed or soon after because the level of detail that this person has knowledge of is pretty significant, especially of Persian culture and customs. They had all kinds of extensive cultural knowledge of the Persian court, the palace. They're deeply Jewish. They're deeply nationalistic. Which is why the next statement is also so fascinating. 
in the book of Esther, where this nation is rescued from genocide, do you know what word never appears? God. Not once is God mentioned. Not any name for God is mentioned. Everything that God has been doing is up for grabs here in history, and he's not mentioned. You know, there's one of, this one of two books. You know what the other book is that doesn't mention God? Guess? Song of Solomon. Who some people say is about Christ's love for church, and I would say it's an erotic love story. But anyway, no mention of God in Song of Solomon, no mention of God in Esther. But listen to a statement made to Esther when all of this was at risk. Mordecai told them, emissaries to Esther, to reply to Esther, verse, uh, chapter four, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, listen to this, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Listen to the faith. You're the queen. Don't think you're going to escape this. But if you walk away from your responsibility, know that God will rescue his people. But he never mentions the word God. He says, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Mordecai had great faith that God would keep his promises alive. And he says to Esther through an emissary, if it's not you, God will find a way. There's deep religious devotion and trust in this book, but the word God is left out in my mind. How can you write this book without leaving it out intentionally to make the point that even though God's people had been scattered all across the globe, God is active in a foreign capital. He is active in an unfriendly country. He's working out his plan. He doesn't need his name in lights. He is God. And he rules and he accomplishes his plan no matter how dark the world or how dark the moment. And it's true today as well. Things that are going on in the world today I couldn't have imagined 20 years ago, culturally. I just couldn't have imagined it. I couldn't have dreamt it up. If you had given us a notebook and a blank sheet of paper in seminary, which wasn't 20 years ago, but a while back, and said, imagine the world is a dark place ethically, morally, philosophically, write out how bad it could be. I could never have imagined the world we live in and what's going on in academia, and in philosophical circles, and how truth is being eroded, the very concept of truth, how God is marginalized. But God hasn't been demoted. He's still at work. He's accomplishing his plan. Second, God is always looking to use us as he orchestrates the circumstances of our lives. I, I love the statement from, from, from Mordecai to Esther through one of these messengers, who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this? And, and I don't, you know, it sounds like a question. Who knows whether you not attained royalty for such a time as this? It's, not, it's, it's a rhetorical question. Esther, 
Why do you think God has elevated you? God has orchestrated this moment for you to shine and rescue your people. And you know what? It's not just Esther's experience. If God is God, and he is, the circumstances of our lives, the good and the bad, are all orchestrated to put us in places where we can affect parts of our dark world that nobody else can affect. You have been divinely placed, just like Esther, without all the fanfare and without a book written about you. But you also have been placed for just a time as this in the lives of the people around you to be used by God. And finally, and the point I'm making today, Esther was at the manger. She was used to keep every prophecy about Jesus alive. There are no messianic promises in Esther. There is no mention of God. But it's the ultimate Christmas story because she keeps alive Genesis 12 through 15 that the great blessing to the world, how Abraham would bless the world, will be from the seed of Abraham. She keeps alive, Genesis 49, it'll be the lion of Judah, of the seed of Judah. She keeps alive the promise of 2 Samuel 7, be the seed of David, born in Bethlehem, from Micah 5, 2. She keeps alive, Isaiah 9, that it will be Emmanuel, God with us, a God-man. She keeps alive the virgin birth, because if the Jews die, there's no Mary and Joseph. She keeps alive, Isaiah 714, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. She keeps alive, most importantly, Isaiah 53. That that child will become a man, the God-man, who will be rejected and killed and hang on a cross and pay for the sins of humanity. Esther was at the manger. God, we thank you for Esther's life. Thank you for how we can see in in her life and the courage she had and the circumstances that you put her in, how we can see that she was used by you to keep alive hundreds and hundreds of prophecies about Jesus, many of which have come true, many of which have not come true yet. But in the fifth century B.C., this young woman had the courage to follow you, to make her position clear to a pagan king who then allowed your people through your sovereign plan to be rescued. Thank you for that story. Thank you for the faith it gives us of you being active in a world no matter how dark it is. You are alive. And we know that because of her great courage, we have hope. Hope for peace with you because it allowed Jesus to come into the human family. And as we celebrate what Jesus did today, I pray that you would help us to go back to the cross and fully appreciate the great sacrifice that was made for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again, and God bless you.